Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, Radiotherapy finally back, uh, finally back uh, in the studio. It's Team Panel Beater here. Um, big thanks to Fiona Scott Norman and um, Jessery Miller for doing This Chicken Life over the summer break, filling in the 10 to 11 spot uh, on Sunday mornings here on Triple R, a cracker of a show. Um, thanks, you guys. It is 2023, Team Panel Beater kicking off uh, the season. It's me, Panel Beater, in the house, in the studio with me is Dr Dilemma, Dr Sharma and Dr Neo. Happy New Year, everyone. And to you too. Mm. It's been a long while, it feels like. I forgot what some of the buttons do. Mm. (laughs) Uh, There's a button that's that's lit up in front of me. I'm not sure if that's meant to be lit up or not. Oh, yeah. Mine's not lit up. Should I I press the red button, guys? (laughs) No, no one press anything. Yeah. What does this one do? (laughs) Yeah. Um, You're all looking well. Is Mm. is all as it seems? Oh, yeah. Very fresh face. I had a bit of annual leave not too long ago and Ooh. rushed to work over the last few weeks, yeah. so can't complain. It's the two coffees that I've already oh, had yeah. before well, today. Ah. That's, what it is. <laughs> that's, what, that's what's done it. Nice work, nice work. So our show today is really a catch-up on a bunch of the things that have caught our eye over summer because it's while we've not been on air, there's been plenty going mm. on, of course. It's not as if the whole health and well-being world stops just because radiotherapy's not. On the airways, right? So we've got a bunch of things to cover off on um, and perhaps things that we will return to um, over the course of the year as well. What have we got, guys? So much. Uh, The thing that caught my eye was psychedelic drugs have been approved. Australia's the first place in the world to approve them as medicine, so we'll be covering that uh, decision. It was a little surprising, a little controversial, mostly welcome, so we'll be getting into that. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of nuance around that, isn't there? I think for the general public, they immediately think party drugs. Yeah, exactly. And so on one hand, people will often think that. On the other hand, people think... This is going to fix me, and well, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into Brilliant. this and uh, discuss exactly what it is that the TJ has said. Good stuff, mm. Emma. Something about pharmacy and GPs going yeah. at it about prescriptions. Yeah. So over the summer, one of the stories I read a lot about was uh, Dan Andrews' uh, pledge to introduce the prescriptions uh, by pharmacists for a number of conditions, uh, which is set to begin in Victoria later this year. Yeah. Um, Mixed responses to to that uh, decision. So yeah, we're going to unpack unpack some of the arguments for and against them. That so brilliant. On that, uh, my segment is about this new weight loss drug that uh, I think has been kind of racing through the nation and through the world. And it's a uh, semaglutide or uh, the brand name. I'm not sure we're allowed to say brand names. Uh, Ozempic. Um, and if you have, if you if you've got a personal experience with this drug, we'd also love to hear from you and kind of get your perspective because it's something that I think everyone in the studio is a little bit a little bit undecided on whether the where we lie on the spectrum of this 
this uh, this new drug and this new treatment. Whenever I hear about a new weight loss drug or something of the that ilk, I keep going, you know, it's clear that, you know, watching your diet and exercising is not working. We really do mm-hmm. need a pill. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, okay, so one member is not undecided. He's fully decided. I, I believe it or not, I'm, I'm with you, panel beta. Like, it's, it's, it's really confronting for people to hear this, but the weight of scientific evidence for people who are morbidly obese... That's reality. Yeah. Uh, so we have to kind of you know, be realistic here, and we'll, we'll get into that as, yeah. uh, as Dr. Neo guides us through that soon. Fantastic. Um, and perhaps, uh, you know, ultimately, a biggest impact story um, that's come to light over summer was a, uh, a release of a short report on um, the health system reform, more pointedly, Medicare and GP's place within Medicare. It was short, only 12 pages, but... My goodness, I'm blown away by the scope of what this report is. Uh, the, the, it's called uh, Strengthening Medicare. That's the report. But there's a massive disconnect between the name and what it's actually doing. It's rare I find that a government inquiry or a report will try to undercall what it's doing. Like, you normally want to make it sound like we're going to you know, change the world. And this is kind of the opposite. They've gone for a very election-friendly, slogan-friendly name, yeah. Strengthening Medicare. You know, we all love Medicare. Uh, but... No, this is, I think, going to completely transform how we deliver primary care in Australia. So we'll run through a few of the big kind of big ticket items, but then delve a bit into the specifics as well of what the government is promising. And I'll tell you what, I don't know which way it's going to go. I suspect some things might go well. I suspect some things are going to be yeah. complicated, to say the least. I reckon we might be able to scratch the scab that is the politics of it as well. Mm. I think calling it strengthening Medicare is a political headline is is a slogan isn't it so we can come to we can come to that as well um and then if we have time for it later in the show right at the tail end we'll be forecasting the sort of items news and uh things that we might anticipate coming up in in 2023 and one of those things might be ai artificial intelligence and health i certainly know in the higher ed sector everybody a lot of people, not everybody, are in conniptions about chat GPT, GPT and other other um, other things. So that'll be great. We'll take a take a look at that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now we've got to get stuck into something that's been making quite a few media headlines and hopefully our discussion is going to help uh, sort you know, myth from fact and uh, idealism from reality. Um, a lot of people would have heard that two chemical substances, uh, MDMA and psilocybin, have now been reclassified in Australia to things that can be used as medicines. Uh, MDMA is the chemical compound that's found in ecstasy, that party drug, and psilocybin is the psychedelic that is found in mushrooms that many people would know. But as opposed to recreational purposes, we're talking about their use as medicines, specifically for treatment-resistant depression, that is depression for which other treatments have not worked, so the idea being that psilocybin could be used for that, and MDMA being used for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so it, this really surprised people uh, because on one hand there had been a flurry of studies happening around the world over the last 
five, ten years. But truth be told, there probably has been accumulating evidence for this over the decades. That said, Australia, typically quite a conservative medical community, uh, we don't tend not to be the first ones to approve a medication or a drug. So in December, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, they took an application from sponsors and they said, mm, no, we don't think you should be using this as medicines just yet. Well, clearly something happened, bit of lobbying, uh, some more safeguards put in, and from the July the 1st, psychiatrists in Australia will be able to prescribe psilocybin or MDMA as, as treatment for patients, which I, I think is, is massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it one hand... Uh, you know, these are you know, drugs, chemicals that have been you know, used recreationally. So there's a lot of stigma, of course, around their use. But clearly there may be some kind of use case for this. So there's, there's that side of things, right, where I think we need to potentially convince people, no, look, these potentially can be used sensibly. On the other hand, the reaction that I'm seeing from everyone in the media is, hallelujah, it's here, it's going to save us. Whereas if you actually look at what the Therapy Goods Administration is saying, it's much more sober. So I'll read out what they've said uh, in their statement. They've said uh, that there is now sufficient evidence that psilocybin and MDMA will, here we go, potentially be effective in the treatment of treatment-resistant depression and post-traumatic stress disorder for certain patients. And they say, also say that, look, that these substances are relatively safe in clinical environments, but some patients could be vulnerable. Mm. Still raises a lot of questions about what that could mean. Can I just take an initial reaction to that? So they've said that they've got enough evidence that there's a potential for it to do yes. something. That That's very peculiar language. Yeah, so on one hand, there's lots of studies about the clinical uses for psilocybin and MDMA, but specifically for these conditions, treatment-resistant uh, depression and, uh, and PTSD, there are numerous trials, but they're small trials, and some of them are yet to be concluded. And really, you look deeper into, into the TGA statement, they go, well, we're approving this because there is a public need for more therapies, which is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Not saying we're approving this because it works. We're saying... Well, there is a need for more therapies, and this, it seems like the potential benefits will outweigh the harms. Mm. So they're, they're far from saying, yeah. this stuff works, get on it. So it, it, it's almost like um, we've got enough evidence to continue trialling it, the, but the difference with the trial is that it's actually going to be prescribable. Yeah, and, and so th- and even the ways that it has been found to be, you know, quote-unquote successful at the moment is relatively short-term trials and in very controlled clinical settings, right? And so th- this is one thing that the TJ is doing that's quite good. They're saying that this is meant to be uh, prescribed by a psychiatrist, supposed to be used within uh, psychotherapy sessions, the idea being that it prompts this kind of interconnectedness that allows people to do the kind of psychotherapy work. And so they want it used in a very narrow way, but you know, I wonder what's going to happen. Can you just set the scene for us? So, what would a what would a, what would it look like to be prescribed, use, and um, undertake therapy? So, so what it would have to be is a psychiatrist who's been granted approval to prescribe this. Now, there's still a lot of regulation being worked out in terms of how this stuff is actually going to be supplied in Australia, and a lot of the the clinical trials. Uh, the idea is that the the patient takes this. They have this you know ability because the pharmacology what they're taking to introspect and get insight and 
feel con- a sense of connectedness that allows them to do that deeper psychotherapy, uh, th- mm. psychotherapy work with the p- person who's providing psychotherapy, which is, in this case, the psychiatrist. But, of course, now you can imagine, panel beat, a lot of people going, does it have to be the psychiatrist? Why couldn't it be the psychologist? Because, of course, <laughs> it's pretty hard to get into a psychiatrist. Yeah. And also, only the, 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 most, the, the richest people with the most... Uh, access are going to be able to get this. But of course, if psychologists uh, are, are allowed to use this and it's prescribed, say, much more widely in that way, well, then that's going to be potentially a lot of people who are going to be eligible for its use. So what's the landscape going to look like in a year, two years, three years' time? Sure. I don't think anyone knows. There's there's lots to unpack in this, in this very small topic. I think one of the things that interests me is that it is an unusual move from the... TGA. It's not something I've really seen them do before. A being the first, mm. and B doing it something where the evidence seems not a hundred percent conclusive. Yeah. I but I think that what is interesting, and particularly in Australia, I think it's going to help lead that decriminalisation and that changing behaviour around drugs, which makes it a much more you know, it's not just this naughty little thing that the mm. adolescents will be doing at at their parties and their festivals. It makes it a much more community-acceptable uh, substance that will make it, in my opinion, in the long run, a lot safer to use in general. Like, if we have a better understanding of the substance and a better understanding of the dosing and a better understanding of the use and the risks... I don't see the downside in that. So this is actually one of the things that the TGA cites, that there has been a lot of, uh, as they say, kind of backyard prescribing off this anyway. So is this a safe way to do it? And I totally agree with that point. This is going to lead to some of that destigmatisation of medications. Interesting point you mentioned about how, yes, Australia doesn't tend to be at the forefront mm. of these things. I think there's been a lot of powerful lobbying. There's a group called uh, Mind Medicine who has been pushing hard for this overtly, yeah. really quite overtly, uh, funding kind of tours of, of speakers about evidence around this in Australia and it's almost kind of like a celebrity list of, of people who are on that panel but you know, they state that they are arguing from a place of medical evidence for this uh, so they've clearly been very effective One of our uh, texters has uh, pointed out that uh, in combination chemists giving advice and scripts from psychedelic drugs being available in media are going to have a field day um, di- not discounting that we're part of the media I guess <laughs> as you pointed out Dr Neo well, um, partic- Particularly panel better, he is the media Um, I think it's worth mentioning, um, you know, the media has obviously had a chance over time to deal with medical marijuana. The and in that scenario, when we're talking about prescription and usage, the patients prescribed, they go and pick up their prescription and they use it domestically. They take it home or and use it, you know, for Mm -hmm. arthritis management or, or whatever the pain management might be. In this case, though, if I understand correctly, you'd be prescribed it and under supervision while yeah. you use it, right? You're not going home and having a trip. Exactly, because for based on a lot of the clinical trials, the whole point is that it's used for this purpose of therapy uh, and also uh, the, as the TJ has highlighted, people can have bad trips. There are so, certain people who are very susceptible to getting very anxious, uh, perhaps even having a psychotic episode. Now they do concede that at the doses that it's being prescribed that it's unlikely to cause any you know, kind of ongoing permanent harm, but yeah it can be very distressing. So I think those safeguards are really going to be very important for its use. But, you know, I was going to say, as much as that text did mention about the media frenzy, right, I had that reaction too, that, God, it's going to get wild. But actually, when you look at medical marijuana, it hasn't been that wild, has it? No. It's almost like... 
I'm yeah. surprised by how chill it's been. Yeah. Is it the drug that's Everyone's been very chill about this story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've seen plenty of um, prescriptions of um, uh, CBD oil or um, it seems to be yeah. very much a common, mm. you know, don't blink twice medication on, on a patient's. There was another takeout from the statement, um, guys, uh, that caught my eye, and, and I'll quote it. There's currently no approved products containing psilocybin or MDA that the TAG has evaluated for quality, safety, and e- efficacy. Yes. In other words, um, they've identified the potential for uh, therapeutic benefit but haven't identified the product yet. Mm. Yes, yes. And I, I imagine the process <laughs> for this is that there are going to be uh, companies who are going to apply for sponsorship of their product. I, I have no doubt that's going to happen. I'm no doubt uh, that they're banging down the doors of the TJ. But speaking of prescribing, uh, uh, Dr. Dilemma, I understand we're also talking about pharmacists and not their power to receive prescriptions but to provide them. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the topics that over the summer I saw again and again in the news. Um, so we cast our minds back to election time late last year when Victorian Premier Dan Andrews said, that if he were re-elected, he would launch a trial for pharmacist-led prescribing that would be a 12-month pilot trial to the tune of $19 million that is set to commence later this year whereby members of the public could visit their pharmacist and receive prescriptions for numerous simple, said in inverted commas, simple medical conditions such Mm. as UTIs or common skin conditions and um, to get things like repeat scripts for... Um, their regular medicines such as like oral contraception pills. So this is a pledge that um, uh, probably unsurprisingly was met with a very mixed response, um, a big flurry of debate between pharmacists and doctors and members of the public and politicians. So I thought maybe this morning we could unpack some of the uh, main discussion points and also a bit about the background behind uh, what's led to um, the decision for the pilot. Um, And basically... Seems it's not a black and white issue. It's very much mm. a big grey area mm. where um, uh, the evidence and the, the potential risks and benefits are, are still to be still to be seen. So, a bit of background um, up in Queensland, um, in our sunny state, back in June 2020, um, an 18 month trial called the Urinary Tract Infection Pharmacy Pilot, or UTIP, that was commenced up in the Queensland, where about 6,500 women. Um, were seen across pharmacies in Queensland with UTI symptoms um, and pharmacists who uh, wished to participate in the trial needed to complete an online learning module, which um, I'm told took about 90 minutes to complete. Um, And then in this pilot, more than 96% of those women um, received an antibiotic prescription, Uh, but only about 35% of the women in that study were available for follow-up at seven days' time. Um, Most of the women that were contacted said that their symptoms had resolved following the antibiotic treatment, but a further more than 10% had either sought um, healthcare uh, elsewhere since since visiting the pharmacy or had been instructed to do so by the pharmacist at the time of the follow-up call. And then there was some uh, really interesting discussion and, um, about the report that came out from that trial. Um, uh, a, a GP in Queensland, Dr Stephanie Dawson-Smith, um, wrote in response to the UTIP um, uh, report at the end of the trial, wrote a letter uh, summarising the many flaws in the protocol and um, basically stated there should be an immediate abandonment of, of um the pharmacy prescribing trials pending um, a further investigation of the UTIP um, report. So mm-hmm. 
lots of lots of controversy uh, surrounding the the rollout of the UTIP trial and then the um, plan to do more uh, to expand that trial to uh, allow prescriptions for even more and more medications mm. um, up in far north Queensland. Uh, and the AMA uh, up in Queensland um, interviewed uh, or surveyed over 1,300 doctors in Queensland and many, many, many raised their concerns about patient safety, um, fragmented healthcare and uh, concerns about over-prescribing. And there were about 239 uh, reports of patients who'd been harmed by or, or experienced complications from being involved in the, in the trial. So very controversial... Um, decision it's become very very messy um and i thought yeah Mm. yeah. well it's an interesting one isn't it like i think certainly myself being a gp you can imagine the view i'm going to have but to to, to kind of be fair for a second we should at least examine what why this is happening right what is the shortfall in the services that's leading to this trial and frankly what looks like it's going to have more and more pharmacists prescribing and it is simply that uh for a lot of patients, it is difficult to get access to a GP, uh, either being cost or the physical logistical impost of going, getting an appointment, etc. Um, and what's what I find fascinating is the fact that we haven't been able to find a more direct solution to that. And instead, the solution we've come to is this complete flip of how it is that we do medicine in terms of uh, the, the doctor prescribing, GPs prescribing, who have very little kind of conflict of interest when it comes to you know, actually g- giving a medication or not, and then end up with the pharmacist doing it. For, for better or worse, the point is there has been a shortfall in the the ability of, of, of general practice to be able to kind of deliver this, either through you know, lack of availability or, or whatever it is. Um, so I don't think it's unfair that... To, to say that there are lapses in the system, but the question is, is this the way to go about it? Well, I think one of the strengths of our medical model is its multidisciplinary nature in that I don't... I mean, I love pharmacists. Pharmacists have saved my bum on more times than I can count, but and I don't pretend to, to have the same knowledge that they do. I don't have that encyclopedic knowledge of drug interactions and, um, you know, specific situations in which I shouldn't be prescribing this drug and should be prescribing a different um, different one. But I think that the benefit is that it's compartmentalised. You know, doctors have their role, they diagnose, and then they say, well, this is the treatment that needs to be done, and pharmacists will be able to supply that medication, but then will also be a safeguard in checking that the medication is mm-hmm. the right dose, the right type, the right, um, the right schedule. And, you know, it's just the same way that I don't... don't Claim to be able to do a physiotherapist job. Yeah. You know, I, I would be a terrible physiotherapist. <laughs> I, I think it's really... That's exactly one of the big uh, arguments, of course, in, in if we use the UTI prescribing um, antibiotics for inverted commas, simple UTIs. They might not be as simple as first meets the eye. Mm. Um, as a pharmacist, are they equipped to physically examine a patient um, mm. who's presenting with a simple UTI? Um, have they got the tools or the, you know, to be able to collect a urine specimen, dipstick it, send it off for a culture and microscopy if need be, and um, um, accurately make those those diagnoses um, from a shopfront retail store setting? Um, just don't know how. And I somehow don't think 90 Minutes online module um, is equipping uh, people for a 
a differential diagnosis, which is incredibly broad. That's exactly what, um, yeah, some of the criticisms, of course, have been a UTI. What looks like a UTI might not be a UTI. It might be an STD. It might be pregnancy. It might be a diabetes, presentation of diabetes or, or a more severe infection that's um, such as pyelonephritis or a kidney infection or, or sepsis caused by initially a urine infection or some cases even presenting symptoms of things like a, a cancer or pelvic masses. So it's not as simple as it seems. The, the proposed trial in the um, far north Queensland proposes 120 hours um, of additional training for pharmacists to be able to prescribe for that additional range of, uh, of medications beyond just the UTI trial, which was the initial one. Um, very messy. Yeah. From Joe Citizen's point of view, I think there are two, you know, to oversimplify it a little bit, two main um, uh, things that are on... Uh, their mind, my mind. <laughs> One is um, I want access to prescriptions when I need them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and if delays to get a GP's appointment obviously um, uh, challenges that access might, and so therefore going straight to a pharmacist might be attractive. Um, but perhaps more importantly, it's about having trust and confidence in the prescription itself. And I've had a, a recent experience where I had a, um, a very sore hip um, get out the violins and I got prescribed some um, pain medication and the, the doctor told me what is what was the GP told me what was going on as, a, as they were writing the prescription and what to, and how to take it and uh, how often and everything and the pharmacist gave me a different and on the label it was a different advice hmm. and I go okay which one do I do do I go what I think in this case it was um, the um, GP said um, once a day whenever it suits you mm -hmm. and the pharmacist said twice a day um, uh, on a full stomach huh. right so n perhaps nothing dramatic I wasn't sure, going, sure. I wasn't going to um, necessarily end up in, a, in an ER or anything like sure, that sure. but there's still kind of significant differences not enough for me to go back to the GP yeah, and say from okay, patient perspective that's that's enormous. Right. That's like right. twice the amount? Yeah. So, you know, um, GP in the room, what do I do? It's hard, isn't it? It's uh, – you know, in that instance, it may not make much of a difference. But, you know, I, when you apply that over any and all conditions, um, you know, what a, any differences depending between what a pharmacist says versus what a, what a GP says – Gosh, it's a pickle for the for the for the patient to be in. All I can say is, uh, you know, as a GP, I really have no particular conflict of interest whether you take a medication or not. Like for better or worse, my bill's been paid when you've got come in my door and I've given you my opinion. Whether you take double or triple the dose, I don't make any more or less money. That's not necessarily true for the person who's selling the drug. Yeah. Not trying to say that that's what pharmacists are trying to do no. but that is a structural issue that is built in, built in with when you are you know charging for the exact thing that you're asking the patient to, to take yeah. um, I, I think to, to kind of be fair to the pharmacists I think they would argue that look no they've got a lot of training and um, you know they can be trained uh, just you know, a bit more to be able to deal with specific conditions and I, I think I'll grant the pharmacists that right I think they are very well educated and with a bit more training they could do that but my question is uh, then where does that stop for another condition and another condition and another condition? Uh, I, I know what the Guild is like. I, I think everyone has to act within the, you know, in line with their own incentives, so I totally get that. So looking at it from the patient's perspective, 
I see something that is not multidisciplinary in the handholdy kumbaya yeah. way. I see it as healthcare that becomes much more fragmented. Yeah. And we're shortly going to be talking about Medicare reform and maybe there's uh, we can join a couple of dots um, with that in mind. You're on Triple R Radiotherapy. It's myself, Panel Beta, Dr Dilemma, Dr Sharma and Dr Neo. We've been talking in this segment about uh, TGA approval of psychedelic drugs for therapeutic use and um, something of the contention around pharmacy uh, pharmacists um, autonomy over prescriptions uh, in vis-a-vis uh, GP uh, autonomy over prescriptions we've had a couple of things come in on the text we've had somebody um, text in saying um, uh, and, and sharing with us that they've been diagnosed with a depression but their job requires them to operate heavy machinery that then means that they're subject to random um, drug and alcohol testing um, and they're wondering uh, some of the implications there don't know the exact dance there, but I suspect any decent company would recognise that a prescribed drug is different from random use of recreational drugs and alcohol. Yeah, that is fascinating. All yeah. of these things we didn't think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also suspect that, that some companies might not fall into into that line and they might say, well, no, this is this is how we've always done it. This is the safety. You cannot be using this. Yeah, it could be a bit of a painful transition yeah. period. And Pete's reminded us that in the 90s he was in a band called Psilocybernauts. <laughs> <laughs> good on you, Pete. Toe-tapping good times, no doubt. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr Neo... Weight loss and a particular drug. So we're here to talk about semaglutide, which is um, the brand name Ozempic, which I'm sure um, many of our listeners are familiar with, is a weekly injection of this thing we call a GLP-1 agonist, which started life as a type 2 diabetes drug with a few main effects that they noticed. So it stimulates your insulin release, which is why it's so effective as a uh, diabetic drug, but it also reduces gastric emptying and reduces appetite which is now why it's being used off-label for weight loss. The drug has actually showed some really impressive effects. So a retrospective cohort study in JAMA um, indicated that after six months, people with a BMI 27 or greater... Now, 27 is not a very um, significant BMI. You know, 25 and... Le- 25, I think it's less than 25 is a healthy... Yeah, so so obese we think of as anything a, a body mass index of over thirty. Twenty seven's yeah. like uh, overweight. You know, it's, it's classified as overweight. And yeah. Before we get a flurry of texts, I mean, you're welcome to, to to send them in. Yes, we are well aware of the massive limitations that yes. come with body mass index. Problematic and in itself. <laughs> the um, the racial disparities, the sex disparities, the individual disparities. Yes, very aware and very, which is why I don't put much uh, stock in it. Anyway, moving on. Um, it showed a, a weight loss of around 11% over a six-month period, which is massive. Wow. It is massive. and But importantly, you know, there is a rebound effect with um, the drug. So once it's been stopped, you know, people will gain up to two-thirds of this weight back in a relatively short period of time. And it works best in combination with a healthy diet and exercise, so not a true miracle drug um, that panel beta was hoping for. But um, <laughs> so you can't continue smashing McDonald's on a daily basis. Oh. Uh, 
But, you know, with the unexpected fame of the drug has come a few downsides. You know, celebrities such as Elon Musk have been spruiking it, saying it's what helped him get ripped. Um, and now there is some quite significant worldwide shortages of the drug. Now, this is important because it's used as quite an effective drug for type 2 diabetes. And with the overall goal of diabetic management is to ensure a steady blood glucose. Um, too high sugar, Too high sugar levels have a quite significant effects particularly over the longer longer term damaging blood vessels nerves and your eyes and diabetic drug regimes are very specific to the individual and finding one that works for keeping your blood sugar in check is quite a you know trial and error long-term management situation so finding that your drug is now unavailable because much of um bunch of people are using it for weight loss might be a bit frustrating but i guess the main reason that I'm, that I'm bringing it up today is this idea of weight loss and the kind of the moral implications that it has you know in my mind it's quite it can either go one of two ways and it actually might go both of them simultaneously in that a we know that obesity and um, particularly morbid obesity has some pretty startling health impacts and it's just a scientific medical fact that you know if you've putting on you're on in those weight ranges uh you're expecting to have high blood pressure higher um there's damage to your bones there's damage to your blood vessels um damages to your brain you know it's not um it's quite uh, startling the health impacts that that weight range can have so bringing that having a drug that allows people to take that off is huge it has massive economic and health effects for the for the population but then at the same time with the popularity of this drug it being so like i mean it's being advertised in facebook it's been advertised in tiktok mm-hmm. uh and it's being used by people who don't necessarily meet those uh the criteria so a bmi of 27 is not is actually quite a healthy bmi there are plenty of people with a bmi of 27 28 who don't need to be losing weight Mm. and stigmatizing that kind of weight loss i think has the potential for some quite um nasty side effects Mm. dr dilemma what are you Mm. what are your thoughts well uh yeah it's very concerning i mean that's also very exciting for populations, but it's also very concerning. I'm thinking of the younger people out there, impressionable, um, you know, body image um, problems are huge amongst our adolescent population and I worry about the already increasing rise of, you know, eating disorders and um, uh, that's, you know, over the last few years we've seen a huge increase in the number of eating disorders and I worry that if this is a readily available well, it's not at the moment, but um, should it become a readily available medication that so many young people jump on board that that we're going to be feeding those those uh, you know very Anxiety very serious well, yeah, yeah mm. and very serious medical and psychiatric illnesses mm. such as eating disorders. Mm. So, but on the other hand, I completely I see that some people work really hard on their exercise some overweight and obese people work really hard on their, you know, eating well and exercising and they don't get to see great impacts the way that this mm. drug seems to be helping 11, them along. 11%, 11% six, is enormous and I don't think... Um, so, yeah, another another grey <laughs> another grey issue we've brought to the radiotherapy discussion this morning. Rick, 
I reckon it's great that you reminded us that BMI is an imperfect um, measure. Yeah, mm. terrible. But does it also mean that with something like this, there's an opportunity to draw attention to that—that mm. that the BMI is imperfect—and perhaps make the distinction between weight and body fat percentage as mm. the health issue, and where the fat in particular is, you know, yeah. subcutaneous around the organs and so on. And I mean, BMI, as lots of things in medicine, is a primarily Caucasian, primarily male um, measurement, and even then it is not perfect. Who are we leaving out? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm actually not sure. No. So, uh, so we know tongue that... firmly parented in cheek. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, and using BMI as a... It's a very easy inclusion method for studies and a very easy inclusion method for um, pe- putting people into risk stratification. And, you know, it's, it's difficult... I think that's that's the that's the big thing for textbooks and for and for studies. It's more difficult, so they just don't do it. Um, but you know, BMI is not perfect, and putting um, a very large emphasis on it is um, not the way that we should be kind mm. of treating should this be the issue. The measure of success, yeah. being reducing your BMI, that's obviously not the way to no. measure success. In- I can't remember. Did you tell us was this prescribable over the counter? Yeah, so it's a prescri- it's a prescription only drug, and currently in Australia, it's only um, PBS prescribable for type two diabetes. There is an, another version, another brand of this drug, which is going to be used for weight loss. Um, I don't think it's currently available in Australia, but uh, it's being prescribed off label, which means non PBS script for uh, weight loss. Would a GP ever prescribe it for weight loss yes, at the yes, moment? Yes, yeah, yes there are plenty of GPs right. doing so, yeah, right? Okay. So I think this really starts to call into question uh, f- you know, how much or how little we should be medicalising these things. There are certainly some people who are clinically obese. We'd go, yes, anything would help your you and your health status if you lost weight. This would be an appropriate thing to use. What's really got uh, me thinking, though, is... Where we're going to end up well within six months or a year, in fact, it's already happening in terms of backyard prescribing or, frankly, just it's uh, people just getting it, you know, off off the back of a truck, Mm. so to speak. We're talking about a drug that makes you skinny. Is there anything that people want more? Uh, You can get any illicit substance you want any time in this geographically isolated Mm. country. I think uh, these medications are going to be absolutely rife. I think the only real factor that's going to be constraining people's access to it is going to be the cost. They are expensive. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, they aren't yeah. cheap. Uh, and uh, as Dr Neo is saying, yeah, they work as long as you, you take them, you stop, and most of the way kind of comes back. But I don't think that's going to dissuade people from using it. Like, there is no permanent uh, you know, fix for, for, for weight gain. Um, and guess what? Diet and exercise is something you need to continue lifelong as well. So I think people are pretty savvy with that stuff. And I think that conversation that we're really going to have to have is what you were saying earlier, Dr Neo, which is about the attitudes that we have about weight and weight loss. Is there really that much to gain from losing just a couple of kilos if you're only a couple of kilos overweight? Mm. And the answer is no. There's actually not that much to gain. For people clinically obese, yes. But for people in the overweight range, yes, some people are going to benefit a lot Mm. from losing uh, a few kilos. Many are not. So do we need to reframe the way we think about that Mm. medically uh, if we don't want uh, to have people ending up with eating disorders, et cetera? And sometimes sometimes weight loss pre-surgery is a big is a good idea, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right, so even short-term weight loss, I yeah. suppose, in that way, medically, could be end up being quite yeah. useful. Um, but yeah, so it's a myriad, I think, of ethical questions mm. that are going to arise. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Medicare reform, Dr Sharma. This is massive. This is enormous. Uh, this 12-page report, although light on detail, certainly gives us a sense of direction about how primary health care is going to be operated in this country. We know that the problem that the government is trying to address, right, uh, long hospital queues in emergency departments and for elective surgeries, long queues to get into your GPs even, and the costs are getting out of control. So the government has known this and they've come up with this report called Strengthening Medicare. And I reckon there's a bit of a disconnect between what the report's name is and the problem it's actually trying to solve. Um, If you you look into it, there's a few things that are just kind of obvious that make sense. So, for example, one of its aims is to modernise primary care, which is to build up good uh, uh, IT infrastructure and my health records, making it, you know, just kind of better. There's a few things there, panel beta, that are a bit vague. Uh, You know, supporting cultural change, putting consumers and communities at the centre of primary care policy design. Interesting, that word, isn't it? Consumers and communities, not patients, which is, you know, that that is what it is. Um, And then there's kind of like... Just vague aims like reducing pressure on hospitals. How do you do that? Let's leave those things aside because there are two really big ticket items which I think are going to completely transform things. One aim is to increase access to primary care uh, through long, uh, a bit providing good, uh, better, I guess, remuneration to GPs for longer consultations, which makes sense. Providing funding for after-hours care, which also makes sense. But then this thing, blended funding models. Now, this is talking about a blend of two systems. The system that we currently have in Australia, which is fee-for-service, you go to a GP, you pay your money, you get the service, versus what's called a capitation model, which is the kind of thing that people who've been in the UK might be used to, which is you sign up to a GP practice, and then that's your GP. And the way that's supposed to work, well, one version of the capitation model is supposed to work, is that, say, if, uh, if, if... uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make you the GP here because I'm going <laughs> to. I don't want to afflict you with theoretical diseases. Say so you're my my GP panel beater. And, Sorry about that. Yeah. And uh, and let's say I have chronic diseases like say diabetes and heart disease. Well, because I'm quite a complex patient, you get a lump sum amount of money as my GP panel beater. Let's just make it. I don't know. Let's make up a number. Two thousand dollars. And as part of that two thousand dollars, if you are to get that lump sum, you have to tick off a bunch of things that you have to bring me in for throughout the year so that's the way that works so you you get paid as long as you do all the things not for every attendance that the patient has and so it was a really kind of lovely concept to to, which tries to you know pay gps to do the harder more complex work but to get all of it done not just walk in the door walk out that's been the theory of capitation but when we look at uh, the nhs which has implemented this Results have been mixed, to say the least. It's left a lot of health practitioners and patients completely disenfranchised. uh, And some people very likely did get better outcomes as a result. A lot of others didn't. Why? Maybe it's the implementation of the system, or maybe it is just human nature, and everyone tries to game the system. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about potentially kind of doctors here, right? right? And not even with the worst of intentions, but but just to kind of deal with the enormous burden of workload and paperwork you can imagine this comes with to 
said, make sure you've ticked everything off. Well, that's a tick sheet now. Yeah. So you, know, you can imagine all the incentives and deterrents at play. Well, what the government is you know, in consultation with all the other stakeholders is going for here is a blended model. Fee-for-service, like we have here, blended with this capitation-style system. I think it's going to change a lot of things. The second thing uh, that I'll bring up is uh, trying to increase the amount of multidisciplinary care. This, uh, it talks about not just increasing the amount of GPs, but also nurses, nurse practitioners, midwives, pharmacists, and uh, allied healthcare workers. But the crucial bit, they want every practitioner to work to the full scope. And what that is really code for is saying, look, there are all these health problems that we need met out of the community outside a hospital. We reckon GPs should be doing the heart, the more complex stuff and perhaps even more complex stuff than they're doing. And all the stuff that can be done by other people should be done by them. Which, you know, broad strokes sounds... There's a logic. Yeah, mm. there, there, there's a logic to it. Yeah. But I think it's going to come with its own set of challenges, which is, well, are the other practitioners going to be able to kind of meet that gap? Are they going to have their own set of incentives to deterrence? Are we going to end up in the same kind of problem? And on one hand, I guess the government is trying to paint this as, well, this is what multidisciplinary team-based care should look like, you know, an entire team looking after a person. But the other view on it is, instead of just seeing that one person, the GP, who used to be able to do these things, are you now going to be seeing three or four or five and rather fragmenting the care? So lots of questions. There's no kind of specific details on any of these things, but I think the aspirations here are absolutely enormous. The government has committed um, $750 million over three years as part of the Strengthening Medicare Fund, but I don't think this is going to be something that increases health expenditure. I think what they're really looking to hear, for better or worse, is to cut costs. Mm. Uh, and that may be for better, but I suspect in many cases it's going to be for worse. We're only a couple of months away from the, the budget and I think all will be revealed or, or you know, the, um, the meat on these bones will be found in the budget and to really where the intentions are with the... Um, we'll see with the allocation of funding amongst allied health and, and primary care and and so on and see where they're going with it. I think my concern with this is that it almost feels like they've looked at the US system and said, I want that, which is absolutely the opposite of what uh, I want as a medical practitioner. I do not want the US system. I do not want uh, fee-for-service. I want a nice public system where we don't have to think about money. Mm. I know that sounds idyllic, but I think that that's... um, the slow creep. You're probably right, but we know with some degree of confidence that if there's one thing that Australians generally agree on, it's it's Medicare Mm. and protecting it. But Medicare is not fit for purpose at the moment. We're an older population. Um, We're a sicker population as a consequence of that. And Medicare was designed for a very different demographic. So we've got got things to do. Hey, time is uh, really racing away. I just want to thank a bunch of the uh, texters who got in. Somebody suggesting that the explanation for the GP prescription and the um, pharmacist uh, advice on the label was that once I got to the pharmacist, um, they were out of stock. They modified release and used a different product and dispensed a a plain half-dose twice-a-day version or something like that. Makes sense. Very reasonable um, explanation. Um, 
Yeah, uh, as somebody mentioned um, there's no Bactrim or Respirum in the country, yes, is that right? So sure, it's been about a month without another month to go. Not the first time I wish pharmacy industry would concentrate on supply issues first. It's not the first time someone who's frequent UTIs and intolerant of other ABs. It's about impact, yeah. Mm-hmm. So another, another really good point. And uh, somebody uh, just saying that um, we seem to be presuming that doctors always get it right. I was diagnosed with gastro when I had ruptured appendix. On the third day, the doctor told me to take double doses of antacid. Then the pharmacist picked up a dangerous prescription as she'd had kidney failure and the locum doctor didn't pick that up. Mm-hmm. So there's there's, there's something something to be said there, right, yeah. for, for experts in their own domain uh, contributing what they can. Yeah, really appreciate uh, the listeners getting in touch and, and sharing those sort of uh, scenarios that we can't always cover directly um, in our general conversation. Um, so thanks for joining us uh, today, dear listeners, and we hope you stick with us through the rest of 2023. It's been um, Radiotherapy Episode 1 for the year. I've been Panel Beater, been in with uh, Dr Neo and uh, Dr Sharma and uh, Dr Dilemma. Thank you to you all. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.